I came to Christ in 1978 after eight years in the Navy. Uh, my wife's uh, mother's Sunday school class took me on as a prayer project when we got married because I was the absolute last thing that they would have, have uh, thought for a son-in-law at the time. Uh, but they did. They were diligent and prayed for me. Four years later, when God gave us our first daughter, uh, I was just about ready to get out of the Navy and uh, looked at her uh, in Balboa Naval Hospital, and I thought there's got to be a better way to live, uh, to raise this little girl. We couldn't raise her the way we were living. So we came back to Albuquerque. I, my folks moved here in 1958 and uh, um, came back, started searching. Uh, I had been, my folks had been part of a, a church that uh, was a religious church, but not a, a gospel-preaching, teaching church. Went back there. Still knew the old creeds and prayers that were always said every single week, just about. And uh, went back to her parents' church, which was First Baptist Church, Bosky Farms. First time I walked in there, I swore I'd never walk into a Baptist church again. Because I was was lost as a goose in high grass and felt I was just a, a trophy project for them. When I went back searching for truth... And reading the Bible and listening to everything I could back in 1978, there wasn't a lot on the radio here. Uh, um, J. Vernon McGee and and uh, some of those guys were on the radio. Uh, and I began to search. God really spoke to my heart in December of 1978, and I surrendered my life to Christ and received him as Savior and Lord. Uh, God began to work in my life. Uh, a few years later, I had a big wrestling match with God and lost uh, to call to ministry and went to Southwestern Seminary, um, graduated there in 1984, and went to First Baptist Carrizozo. Had a great first pastorate there for five years. Uh, God took me to Grants uh, from there, and after Grants, I went to First Baptist to Harris in 1990, and uh, pastored there for nine years, where we started a church uh, seven miles north that's up in Sandia Park, Pista Grande Church, um, back in, we actually constituted January 5th of 2000, so we just had 20 years uh, for that church. Um, pastored it for 12 when God called me to be associational director, and, uh, and that's been a whole different type of ministry. We work with about 73 churches in central New Mexico from Cuba all the way to Vaughn and then everything in between, all sizes and types of churches. And, uh, and I, I love that. It's a different type of ministry, but it's been a great blessing to me. Um, after I left Vista Grande Church, they called a new pastor. He was there five years. Uh, after two years, uh, and he and I were visiting, uh, he encouraged us to come back. And so we came back as members of the church that we were able to start and still are members there. I'm an elder in the church now. And we have a new pastor coming next Sunday. Uh, we uh, went through a year-long search, and we had a great team uh, who, who followed a great process and prayerfully considered, and so we're very excited. Actually, in our association right now, there's only three churches that don't have pastors, uh, Lindreth uh, First Baptist, uh, Hoffmantown, which I think is getting pretty close, and Del Norte Baptist. And this is the first time in a long time that we've had this few churches without pastors, and I love the, the guys that God is bringing into our association. Um, they're energetic. Uh, they have a great vision. They're tearing down walls and building bridges. Uh, they're wanting to work together and encourage one another. And, uh, and so I just love that because I see God doing a great work in the association. Uh, many are still trying to figure out the association, BCNM and, and SBC as well, uh, three different entities. Ours is kind of the field uh, entity. We, we're self-supported by our churches, and you're one of the churches that help us fulfill our mission. And our mission basically is to help our churches fulfill the mission and vision God has given them. That's what we're here for, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to be a, a resource, an encouragement, a strength, uh, especially with our smaller churches uh, that don't have other resources. So we really focus on those things. Uh, matter of fact, now um, Stephen is uh, uh, on our board, our associational board, and I love having him on the board. Um, Nikki served here about a year and a half ago or so. She was on our board and just love them and appreciate them. And I was just so sorry to hear that he had to go to Hawaii 
to work on his, uh, on his, <laughs> with his cohort. That was uh, a real downer to me, and I, I really prayed about it. So, I mean, I meant for him, not for me. So, uh, so anyway, uh, and I like to listen to sermons. I'll go on different church websites, and if they have sermons posted uh, from the Sundays uh, that they they preach, I like to keep up with what's what's going on and where what they're focusing on. And I was able to go back and see what Stephen had been focusing on, especially at the first of the year, talking about mission and vision. And I know he made a challenge to you uh, the second week about uh, 2,020 hours of log service. And I noticed when he said that, that he immediately clarified that that wasn't individually. Uh, I thought, well, Stephen, that's a, that's a good thing to do. So I thought, I'm visualizing this because there's not video of it. He he said that, and I almost could see your eyes get really big and wide because he immediately jumped in to uh, indicate that this was a corporate effort, not an individual effort. And so this morning I want to talk to you uh, uh, about a message I titled our, our mission and our ministry and our mission, Why Do We Do What We Do? One of the things that I think we struggle with as believers is we, we want to be told what to do. We want to be encouraged to do something. But just like our kids, sometimes you try to get them to do something that they need to do or should be doing, and they don't want to do it. And they, the, the question is, well, why? Why do I have to do this? Why should I do this, right? Uh, we had a physicist at uh, Teheras First Baptist, and his son, I can't remember his name right now, but... Uh, Paul, uh, for a long time, no matter what you were doing in the church, Paul would follow you around. Now, this kid had a brain like three times the size of mine at work. And uh, he, everything was, well, why? Well, Paul, we need to do this. Well, why? Why do we need to do this? You know, he had his dad's mind. He needed to understand. And so this morning, I want to talk about why we do what we do from Second Corinthians chapter 5. Because I think it's important, not just, certainly we want to be obedient to the Lord. We want to follow his commands and we want to understand how we need to live and how we need to respond to what he has done in our life. And I think by understanding what has taken place in our life as God has come into our hearts through faith in Christ, as he has given us the Holy Spirit, as he has promised all of these things to us, as well as the challenges and all the other things that we face in life, how that all works together to his glory and his honor and his purpose, I think it's good to ask the question, why? Why do we do these things? So the passage in Second Corinthians chapter 5, if, and I noticed Stephen um, mentions you have a Bible uh, in your chair, and uh, so I looked up the, the page number, 908, is where this is found. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to turn, uh, we encourage you to do that as well. So, um, keeping within the culture of your church, uh, if you will stand, I will read this passage of Scripture for us, and uh, you can follow along with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled him, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, I thank you for your word. 
And I thank you as we have gathered here this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth, to worship you in, in, in through the singing of songs which help draw us to the throne room of grace. And I thank you that we can open up your word today and, and read it and understand it and that you will speak to us. Father, I realize and, and I think there's that expectation that any time we come together in corporate worship, in Bible study, uh, in a message, uh, that you speak to our hearts that there's no way we can come in and meet with you and not respond to you in some way because you speak to us individually as well as corporately. And I pray this morning that as you speak to us through your word, that if there is anyone who does not know Christ as Savior and Lord and know for certain that when they die, they will be in your kingdom, that, God, you will draw them to yourself and and that they would receive Christ and become born again. And I pray for those who are your children that you will inspire and strengthen and challenge us in our walk and in our ministry and in our outlook for the glory of Jesus Christ. For I pray it in his name. Amen. So let me share some things with you uh, from uh, this passage. The very first thing that we realize here is that first statement. His love compels us in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. The word compels means uh, to have a pressure that causes some kind of an action. And in fact, uh, the King James Version uh, uses the term constrains. And it's kind of an overwhelming pressure uh, that that needs to find a, a way of release. And I've thought about a few illustrations with this. One would be when you blow up a balloon, you create pressure within that latex balloon. And if you just let go of it, it's going to take off somewhere because it, it has to. That pressure is there to move that balloon somewhere. If you think in terms of a, a, an engine, uh, when that piston closes and compresses the air and it's mixed with the fuel and the spark comes and the spark hits that it causes an explosion and causes that piston to be pushed down we are compelled by the love of christ and i'm very convinced that if we only knew of the love of christ if we recognize to the extent that his love was to die on a cross for us that in and of itself should be enough to motivate us and to move us to serve him and to and to prioritize him in our lives Amen. i think many times we fail to recognize that great sacrifice the great amount of love that the holy spirit indwells in us and that love is there it all all it needs to happen is it to be released so that it can love others as Christ has loved us. We are compelled to serve him. His love compels us. Paul's words uh, tell us that as we receive the love of Christ in our lives, we will willingly let it change the way we think and act. It means the love of Christ will influence every decision we make and everything we do. His love becomes our way of life not just an emotion that we feel. We are compelled to do a lot of things. Sometimes we're compelled by hate or anger. That's where we're at in our society today. There's so much hate, so much anger, uh, so much rebelliousness, and that causes people to to action. In other words, they go out and they attack. Uh, They're fighting. There's all kinds of things that are compelling them uh, to do the things that they do. We're not supposed to hate or be angry at our brother. Uh, in fact, Jesus said, if, you, if you're angry with your brother and you, or, and you take it to the fullest extent, it's murder. Uh, we're also compelled by fear. Now, in First John chapter 4, it says that there is no fear in love. Christ's love compels us. We're not supposed to have fear, but many times we act out of fear. Uh, we act out of fear uh, to escape or to hide uh, or even to engage in something. Uh, that compels us. Some people are compelled by greed. Uh, that, that's what causes them to do the things they do. Step on other people. Take advantage of them. They want more and more money. They want more and more possessions. And they go to great extents to achieve those. Some people are compelled by pride. 
pride is really an insecurity in the person's heart. And so they're, they're trying to build themselves up and make themselves better than they are. Uh, they try to tear other people down to make themselves look better. And some people are compelled by power. All of those things are things that are sin in our lives. But those are the things that compel us and cause us to act. Some people are compelled by loyalty to some kind of a football team. <laughs> and we'll see the true realization of that later today. I, I wore my, uh, my uh, Super Bowl colors today, blue, because I'm blue. My team didn't get there. That's a whole different thing. Actually, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not going to tell you who I'm rooting for because I don't want to cause hate or anger or fear or greed or pride or any of those things. I don't want to do that. Love is the theme. Remember, he, lo- he loved us first, and we should respond to his love by loving others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. If that is not the compelling motive in your heart and in your life, then you need to really evaluate what you're doing. If it's for any other reason outside of Christ's love in you and through you, then you need to ask the question, is that really what I should be doing? Because his love should have priority. It should compel us. But look at the second thing here. His sacrifice convinces us. His sacrifice convinces us. The scripture here says, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer do what? Live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That word convinced uh, is a term like a courtroom term. It means to judge. And, and it has the idea that you have looked at all the evidence that you understand. Now, our faith is not based on evidence alone, but it is the confirmation. Uh, you look at all the things. You look at your life as a sinner. You look at him in his perfection and in his glory, and you recognize how far away you are from him and how separated you are from him. And, and you look at that and say, his sacrifice on the cross convinces me through his resurrection that he is who he said he is and he does what he says he will do i'm convinced of that and if we're convinced of it that he died for us and he died for all and therefore all are dead all have died then those who live do not live for themselves any longer that is the life change it's not a list of things to do and not to do it's an attitude of the heart That love which compels us should now, through being convinced of Christ's resurrection power in us and the message that we share with others, that should mean that our life is reprioritized and he has free reign to do what he wants to do in us. Nancy Lee DeMoss many years ago wrote a series of of books called Brokenness, Surrender, and Holiness based on a conference that was held up in Colorado Springs Uh, for Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's called Crew. And it was their annual conference. They brought everybody together uh, from all the campuses, all the student leaders, and they had an agenda for the week, and everything was going to go fine. Uh, And then that first day, one of the students got up and began to share and started to confess sin. And the whole dynamic of the conference changed because she said then another student got up and began to confess sin. They had to rearrange the entire conference because now all these students were confessing sin. They were broken before God, recognizing how sinful they were. And the the next step was this surrender. And surrender, as she identifies it, she said, it's like God giving you a blank contract and saying, you sign at the bottom, I'll fill it in as we go. And I love that illustration because it takes us out of the way. That's what it's saying here. We are convinced that he died for us, and that means that we no longer live for ourselves. We don't dictate what we do and what we don't do. We don't tell ourselves where to go. We go where he tells us to go. Because of his resurrection power, uh, we are, are convinced that his sacrifice did what it needed to do in us and through us. I think one of the great challenges we have in our lives as Christ followers is that surrender part because we have trouble letting go. 
we have trouble just releasing our lives to the Lord and saying, God, I have no control. You have all control. You direct me and you guide me, and I will not be apologetic about it. I will not stand against it. I will do what you want to do in my life. And many times that can be a great challenge for us. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, it says this, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. In Romans 4, 25, it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see, justification is, is one of those great terms. In other words, we are still sinners, but we're declared righteous even though we aren't through Christ. That's why we still have this conflict with the flesh, like the Apostle Paul talks about, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I should. How many of you have done that this morning, right? Uh, <laughs> listen, that's an ongoing process, but we are justified We are justified through Jesus Christ who delivered us from death. Jesus was our substitution in that he was made sin on our behalf. Jesus did what we could not do. He took our place, bore our sins in his body on the cross. And Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what, how great of love, great a love that is? And what a difference that would make in our life if we truly were compelled by his love to live his love out toward others. In that even though people have done things wrong to us, treated us badly, talked badly, uh, all kinds of things that we have been unwilling to forgive, think about what Jesus did here because of his great love for us, because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his resurrection power, he demonstrated and showed how much he loved us through the cross. And he justified us. How would that be played out in your life in relationship to those that you've had problems with? If you looked at them differently and loved them in spite of the actions that they took against you. Because love, remember, covers a multitude of sin. Had that not happened in our life, we would be without hope. But because it's happened in us, Christ wants to compel us to show that same love to others. Now, we don't justify anybody, but we can certainly lead them to the one who does. And that's the whole idea. His sacrifice has convinced us that what he did and who he is and what he has promised is absolutely true. We have to think about those things and we have to live those out in our lives. Jesus made a propitiation for us. In 1 Peter 2.24 it says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, which is a reference back to Isaiah. In Romans 3.25 it says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. In 1 John 2.2 it says, And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In other words, you're not just a select group. He did this for all. First John 4.10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sin. That word means the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. A propitiation deals with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is due to the legal requirement of the law that there has to be a, a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, the Scripture says. Jesus paid the price. He became the sacrificial lamb for us. And he paid that price which we could never, ever pay ourselves by bearing it on the cross. 
Well, the result of that is this. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but him who died for them and was raised again. So here's the great battle. Here's the, here's the problem that we have. We still have our, our way. We have our backgrounds. We have our experiences. We have our desires. And, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves. They only become bad when they begin to rule our life instead of Christ. And when Christ is the ruler of our life and we've totally surrendered ourselves to him, then the the question each and every day is not, Lord, this is what I will do, but, Lord, what will you will me to do? What direction do I need to take in my life? You know, God does not always lay it out clear for us. Wouldn't it be wonderful uh, that as you get in your car and you turn it on and you've got that little uh, uh, that little screen there that lights up with all the information and the music and, and all that kind of stuff, if it just popped up and, and God has a message for you, here's what you're going to do today. And you go, awesome, love it. But you left Starbucks out. <laughs> I'll be okay with that. No, walking by faith is allowing God to lead you moment by moment, step by step, because you don't know what you're going to encounter every day. You don't know who you're going to have to deal with. You don't know who may engage you in a positive way or a negative way. You don't know how you're going to act on the interstate when people are cutting you off or running you off the road. You don't know how you're going to react if you get some bad news or good news. You have to trust God to lead you and guide you every part of your life with your family, as an individual, and even as a, as a church especially. Those things have to be under his control and his guidance. We can never place ourselves above him. When we do that, then we've superseded what he wants to do. In Matthew uh, 16 is the story of Jesus walking with his disciples And he's talking to them, and he says to them, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some say another prophet. And Jesus stopped. He said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, in one of those moments of glory in Peter's life, which were few, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus begins then to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem and be turned over to the hands of the priests and, and, be, and be killed. Now Peter takes on the role of protector. And he tells Jesus, no, 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 no. We're not going to let that happen. He rebukes him, it says. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. For your eyes are on the things of man, not the things of God. Peter goes from way up here in that great holy moment of revelation all the way down here well, now he's, where now he's an adversary. What happened was what Peter did is what we do many times. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a reason. He has a will. He has a direction. And we get in the way because we think we know more than God does. And when that happens, we are stepping out of the will of God When we surrender ourselves totally and completely to him, then we're stepping into the will of God because his will and his purpose is far greater than ours. And so we have to surrender ourselves. Number three, number three, his power changes us. His power changes us. In verse 16, so now, uh, so from now on, we regard no one from a what? Worldly point of view. That's what Jesus just said about Peter. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, before I came to Christ and somebody said, well, what about going to hell? I go, oh, I'll just be down there with all my friends. Well, who's Jesus? Well, he's the guy we go to uh, for Christmas, you know, and sometimes at Easter. We don't see him the same way any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now think about that and think about your own life and how Christ came into your life, how you surrendered yourself to him. We don't see the world any longer, which means that we don't react to things the way the world does. 
And boy, if you want a big picture of that, just look at this political thing going on today. So many believers are reacting the way the world reacts. Instead of on their hands and knees before God and praying for those in leadership, praying for His will to be done. Because I understand uh, that the Bible says that only those that God wants in leadership will be there. He's the ultimate vote, right? So if we want His will to be done, why shouldn't we be praying for His will to be done? Now, that doesn't mean we, we don't have, have people that we believe are, 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 are more in tune with, with God's values, with, with morality, with the direction. That doesn't mean that at all. But ultimately, if we are attacking others, then we've taken on the role of trying to determine what God wants to do here. We've got to be prayer warriors. We have to ask him to do what he wants to do and allow it to happen and let it happen and not complain about the result. If he is truly in control, folks, he is truly in control. And if you have a complaint, you go to him and let him deal with it. Don't be like Job, though, because Job always wanted to stand before God, and, and he wanted an answer. And as soon as God shows up, where's Job? On his face in the sand. I guarantee that's where you're going to be the same place. His power changes us. First, we have a new perspective. We, we, don't, we have to have in mind the things of God, not of man. That's a different perspective. When you live with that perspective, it will change how you relate to the rest of the world around you with your family, with others. It means that we understand that we are still sinners. Let me ask you this. How can we expect the world around us to act as Christ followers when they don't have the nature of God in them? The world, by its very nature, is going to respond to things the way a sinful nature does. Why would we expect them to be any different? Why would we be surprised about that? We have the nature of Christ, the Holy Spirit in us. We ought to be responding the way Christ would respond to things, not the way the world does. We have to have a new perspective. We also uh, have a new position. He says here, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not just a renovation. He's a new creation. He's a new man. In fact, when I came to Christ... The change was so dramatic that it blew uh, Trudy's family and others that knew me. It, it, it was a bigger impact on them than it was on me because they saw a dramatic change in my life. That didn't mean I took everything away. Wouldn't it be wonderful if when you surrender your life to Christ, he just took all the stuff away that you struggled with? Man. Well, he will one day. I mean, it's all <laughs> when we get to the kingdom. Uh, but until then, we, we've got to still struggle with the flesh. But there's dramatic change in perspective, in surrendering, in obedience that happens because the Holy Spirit is, is in us. And, and don't people cannot say this, well, you don't know what they've done. We can't say that. Because that tells me that we don't know what we did to Christ. It doesn't matter what somebody's done to us. We still love them. We still have a different perspective. We still do what we're supposed to do as Christ followers. We're in a new position in Christ. We are now in Christ. We are new creations. The old is gone. We are in a fixed position in time and place and state and future because of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, it says we all were lost, but through Christ we are made alive. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It means the old man has been put away. If God has taken it away, then you shouldn't be living in it. Why do we still want to live in an old life when we can be living in the new life? Yeah. Why should the old life dictate our actions and reactions? Why should the old life have a power over our relationships or over our priorities? It shouldn't. That's the old life. It's gone. Why should our past sins determine our future obedience? I struggled with that because my life was pretty crazy pretty wild before I came to Christ. And I, I was fine with being forgiven of my sins, which we are and should be. But I really struggled when God began to deal with me about preaching his word. My struggle was, God, why would you take someone like me and ask me to preach your word? I lost the struggle. 
But why wouldn't he? That's really the question. What is he doing in your life? What is it that's getting in the way of you serving him and his calling in your own life as well based on something that happened in the past that God's forgiving, given and you're still kind of holding on to? You're a different position. You're not separated from him. You're part of the family now. He's your father. He wants what's best for you and what's best for you is you to be obedient to his calling and surrender to what he wants to do. In Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love, compelled again, so great is his love for those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And if he has already done it, we need to let it go. Number three with this. Now, before I go there, Paul, my life kind of verse, my spiritual life verses is uh, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. I forget that which lies behind and press on to that which lies ahead for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I had to claim that and live it to let go of everything I had done in the past so I could move forward in serving the Lord. And I think there are those here and other believers who need to do the same thing. Number three, we have a new purpose. It means that it has all happened because Jesus Christ is in us. We are washed by the blood of Jesus, declared righteous, justified, and have a purpose in his kingdom. And one of the great passages that reveal that purpose that impacts every church, every individual, Christ follower, is that what we are here to do. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says this, We proclaim him, not ourselves, I added that in there. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works in me powerfully. You see, that's what we're here to do. Not, not to appease ourselves, not to make ourselves more comfortable, not, not to, to, to come in and, and just be hand-fed. No, we have a responsibility. There's an expectation God has of each one of us to go outside the walls of a building and to impact the world for Christ and to proclaim Him and to teach a gospel with wisdom so that we can present everyone. It's as if we go out and, and, and we share the good news and, and Christ saves them, that we can begin to disciple them and mature them and help them be prepared for service. By the way, our pews are full of people that I believe God will call up and is calling up to serve Him in different areas. That's not full-time ministry, though it could be. It could be missionary service. It could be working with some uh, group or someone in your church. It could be ministering. But God has gifted you to do this. That's his expectation. But we present him so that we can present every person mature. In other words, when they come in, we have to take them and we have to nurture them and teach them and help them grow in Christ. If you remember, the writer of Hebrews wrote to them. He said, listen, I came to you with the meat of the word, uh, but you're still on the milk of the word. I have to take you back and teach you the elementary things of the faith. How disappointing. Every single one of us, there's an expectation that we will be growing in Christ. And growing in Christ doesn't just mean showing up when the church doors are open. Growing in Christ is learning through the reading of God's Word, the study, through prayer, through interacting with other believers in discussion, through looking at your life and those around you and asking the question, Lord, how can I serve you and serve them? That's what the whole mission and and vision thing is about. God has a plan for you. He has a will for you. He has a direction for you. And the only thing that gets in the way is the question, will you follow? And will you be obedient? The fourth thing is this. His commission enlists us. I don't know if you knew this or not, but when you surrendered your life to Christ, you enlisted (laughs) to be his ambassador. He didn't say, hey, listen, I want you to come. I want you to surrender your life to me. I want you to be my child. And uh, and if you'd like, I'll make you an ambassador. Or, 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 you know, if you have time, I want you to kind of represent me. You know, if you can work it out with your schedule. I think that's one of the things that we fail to do at the very beginning of a new person in Christ's walk with Christ is help them understand this is an expectation. 
You are now an ambassador, whether you like it or not. You're either a good ambassador or you're a bad ambassador. You're either drawing people to Christ or you're pushing them away from Christ. And boy, if you want a tough prayer time, get on your knees before God and say, God, which one am I doing? Am I an ambassador that's reaching out and representing you in a way to draw people to you? Or am I leading people away from you? Because you can look real good on Sunday morning in the community of believers and you could be a terrible witness out in the community that would keep anybody from even walking into this church. We have this identity crisis in our society now with the church, which years and years ago used to have some respect. Didn't mean everybody in church was a believer, but at least there was a respect for it. We don't live in those days any longer. We live in a hostile world toward Christ and toward his church and those who represent Christ. And to be very honest with you, I think we're in a better position today than we were 40, 50 years ago in that respect. Because now those who are truly committed to Christ will stand for Christ. There's not that gray area with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We need committed believers. We need true ambassadors who represent Jesus Christ. Because people are going to know who Jesus is by what they see in you. Your neighbor, your family, your co-workers, people at school, all those in your networks. If they don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, they're going to determine who he is by what you do in representing him. And I'll tell you, that's a heavy load. So if you want to be the best ambassador you can be, that means that you need to get engaged and grow as a disciple. You need to get in Bible study. You need to get in community with other believers. You need, you need to get involved in ministry. One of the great strengths of a, a follower of Christ is to get involved in ministry where they see God working, where they're depending on Him to lead them and open up doors where the gospel can be shared, serving others. You see, there's a big difference between a job and a ministry. A job is something you do for what you get out of it. So you don't go to work, and next week or whenever you get your paycheck, you tell your boss, listen, I have loved this so much. You keep the money. I'm just so thrilled to be able to work here. Boy, if you're going to do that, uh, I don't even know what to say to you. A ministry is what you do for someone else with no expectation of return. What you get out of that is that you get to represent Christ called by his name. Now, he blesses and honors that, and he doesn't honor it with money and power and position. He honors it with his presence in you to inspire you and strengthen you to continue on and finish your race. You see, there's a big big difference, and some people serve in a church because it's a job, and they like the prestige, they like the position, they like what power they might have. Wrong reason. Ministry is you serve. Now, do we want to recognize? Yes, we want to recognize the servants. Be thankful for them and their commitment and their service to the Lord, and there's nothing wrong with that. But where your heart is is what's important. We're given a new ministry. I told Danny, I said, I listened to a few of Stephen's sermons. I said, I'm not too worried about going too long. So... So when I go over that, then you guys can, can start giving me the eye. Um, and I'm just kidding. I love Stephen's preaching. All right. So uh, we're given a new ministry. That word is the same word that we have as uh, for deacons, uh, a servant, a table servant. Uh, we have a new message, which is God reconciling the world to himself. Not that God, he doesn't hate the world. He loves the world. But the world thinks he hates them. He doesn't. He loves not counting our sins against us. He's committed us to that message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is taking that which has been broken apart and bringing it back together. Uh, The message is to go out and share so that those who don't know Christ can come to know him, but it also reflects on those who are Christ who have gone astray, that need to be reconciled back to the Lord. And that, again, only happens through love and ministry. And we have a new master and Lord because we are his ambassadors. 
Ambassadors don't speak their own heart and their own mind. An ambassador is in a foreign country. We are in the world, but not of the world, Jesus said. We don't speak our opinions and our desires and our wants. We speak only what he tells us to speak, what reflects him in every case, because we are reflecting him. We're his ambassador. We don't get to make the decisions. He makes the decisions. We obediently follow whatever it is that he tells us he wants to do. John MacArthur shared a story when he was at that White House under President Bush's administration. He said, I preached a message some years ago called The Deadly Dangers of Moralism, in which I said, evangelical Christianity today is spending too much time, too much money, too much effort trying to change the culture rather than preach the ministry of reconciliation. The sovereign has given us the message. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a a great insight. It's not about buildings. It's not about budgets. It's not about numbers. It's about proclaiming Christ. It's a kingdom work. That's what I love about our associational work is that we work with all our churches. In fact, uh, we work with evangelical churches that are not associated with our our Southern Baptists that are on the same mind and have the same kingdom focus. It's not about building an empire. It's not about building an island. It's about building the kingdom of God. So if somebody comes to faith, it doesn't have to be here because they're there. And God will direct their path to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church where they should be able to grow in Christ. This is a kingdom work. It's bigger than than us, and it should be. Then number five, his invitation draws us. Now notice what he says here in verse 20. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The word is parakaleo and it's a word with lots of meaning. It means to ask or urge or encourage or counsel or admonish or exhort. And what Paul is saying, we urge you, we implore you, come to Christ. Be reconciled to God. You don't have to live in a world of darkness. You don't have to live in a world without hope. You don't have to live with all the the baggage in your life. You come to Christ. Be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Become a new creation. All the old is gone. All the new is ahead. You will have a Father that loves you and will direct you. You will have a hope and a promise. You will have a joy and a peace that the world cannot give you. And you will have an eternal destiny that cannot be taken away from you. Implore. Sometimes we soften the gospel too much and we're not quite as intense with it as I think we should. I, I struggle with that as well. I'm not an evangelist. Um, I, I try to be a preacher of the gospel. But I ought to have a heart and a desire to see people come to Christ yeah. and talk to them, imploring them to do so. A preaching student under D.L. Moody went to him after class one uh, one. Uh, day and uh, he was preaching he had a church he was preaching at but he was taking a preaching class and and he told uh, dr moody he said listen uh, he said you know we don't we don't have anybody coming down the aisle anymore and uh deal moody said well do you do you expect anybody to come down the aisle every sunday he said well no he said well there's your problem <laughs> you don't have, you don't anticipate that the holy spirit can work in the life of a person right here, right now, in this place. But they have to know how great the love of Christ is and the sacrifice that he made, that they can be drawn to him and and, and, and accept and, and be reconciled to him. Bottom line, God made Jesus Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we who are sinners might become his righteousness. He demonstrated himself his, uh, through his sacrifice. So we are compelled, we're convinced, we're changed, we're enlisted, and he invites us to come to Christ. So let me ask you two, two questions. Number one, as a Christ follower, as a Christ follower, why do you do what you do 
for Jesus? Why do you do what you do for Jesus? What is your motivation? What is compelling you? What is driving you? How are you involved in serving him? What is your perspective? How do you deal in a world that is so anti-Christ to be Christ in it? I think that's a question we need to ask. I think we need to evaluate ourselves regularly. Lord, am I truly the ambassador that you expect me to be and you call me to be? And if not, forgive me and help me be that ambassador that you need me to be. And help me have that desire to go out and share the good news with others that they can be saved. And secondly, if you're here and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I urge you, implore you, be reconciled to God. Because Jesus loved you so much that he died on a cross for your sin. And his promise is that when you surrender yourself to him, confessing your sin. By the way, confession is just simply agreeing with God what he already knows about you. It's taking responsibility. Lord, I'm a sinner. Repenting in your life, turning away from your direction and following Jesus and believing in your heart to what Jesus did on the cross through his shed blood and through the resurrection from the dead was sufficient to pay the price for you and ask him to forgive you and surrender your life to him. And the Holy Spirit will come in and you'll be a new creation. I think this morning, if you don't know Christ, I implore you, be reconciled to God. We're going to close. And I just ask as we close here, if you'd bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I like to do this because I like to have a little bit of personal time of prayer here. So I'd like you, where you're sitting, just sit there and pray. And ask God what you need to do in response to his word this morning. You never want to come in and meet with him and walk out the doors without having some response to what he has spoken to your heart. If you're a non-believer, I would pray that you would just pray and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you, confess your sin, turn from it, and ask him to come into your heart and forgive you of your sin. And then when we begin the music, uh, Corey will be down here in front, and you can come, and, and he will pray with you, or I will pray with you, and we'll help you understand how to, how to receive Christ and what that means for your life. Maybe you just need to come down to the front and pray. If you need to do that, please do that. If God is leading you to respond in some way, do not deny him, but honor him through your response.